Truth Espresso, episode 227. Face it, we all would rather sleep in this morning. <sighs> That's why God gave us espresso to kickstart our zombified corpses into hyperdrive. <laughs> And now, giving your mind and soul the morning shot of truth it craves. This is Truth Espresso with Daniel Minnick. Hey there, friend, family, foe, and lurker alike. This is your host, Daniel Minnick. Welcome to Truth Espresso, and I have here with me also my sweet, beautiful wife and co-host, Chelsea. And we are continuing our series on revivals. The recent Asbury revival, as they're called, has caused us to reflect on just what is a revival and then to study revivals throughout American history to kind of get an idea of what has revivals looked like in the past, how have they possibly changed over time, how have they been characterized by the centuries, and then we can, from past knowledge, evaluate what revivals going on today day look like in comparison and try to see if, can we see the good or maybe not so good both in history and today so sweetheart thank you for doing this with me yes thanks for having me join you on this this is pretty fun and enlightening i don't you think for like learning about especially the first great awakening here to see what conditions are like and the lives of some of these great revivalists and really how it shaped history yes i think it's been fun learning more about some of these revivalists lives and what all they had to go through to preach the gospel to people and just their heart for people and I don't know, in some ways it's kind of convicting too because we don't see that kind of conviction <laughs> and that fervor to bring the gospel to people and go through great lengths to do that, especially here in America. And that's where these people were from. Like they came here to America to make sure we had our freedoms, we had our liberties, we had the ability to worship God. And unfortunately, we're seeing all of that get pulled out from under us again. And we need a revival. Like, oh, yes. It's, and it starts with us, like, individually having the Holy Spirit work in us to stir that fervor inside of us again. <laughs> yeah, and speaking of fervor, the person we're going to talk about is definitely one who had fervor. If you want to think of someone who ate, drank, breathed, slept the gospel, that was George Whitfield and... <laughs> Yeah, so basically he pretty much, what little sleep he got, it was out of necessity, and he was one who basically wore himself out with his fervor to preach. It was a life short-lived, but full of results, daily excitement. <laughs> so out of the revivalists we've talked about so far, do you have a favorite one? <laughs> well, let's see. We talked about, let's see. 
So that brings up the fact that this is part three of our series. <laughs> and uh, so we highly recommend if you're just tuning in for this episode to get a better handle on the conditions that bring us to talking about George Whitfield. We highly recommend you listen to parts one and two, the last two episodes. We talked about the early colonies, the pilgrims, the Congregationalist churches, the halfway covenant, Richard Mather, Solomon Stoddard, and then finally Jonathan Edwards and his sinners in the hands of an angry God and some of the efforts he faced with trying to bring back the dead religion, basically uh, religious formalism and nominalism back to having a true, genuine, personal relationship with Jesus Christ. And, you know, how many thousands of people were saved under his influence. And one of his contemporaries was George Whitfield. Now, Jonathan Edwards, he was the pastor of Northampton Church in Massachusetts, but George Whitfield began and was a native of England. Now, most of the people who were in the colonies, they're not too distant ancestors, and some of them migrated from England for religious liberty to kind of escape the dead religion at the time, the formalism and nominalism of the Anglican Church, the Church of England. But then sometimes there would be the temptation of the colonies as people grew wealthy and complacent to kind of drift back into that type of dead and nominal religion that characterized the Anglican Church. And so the revivalists were intent on stirring up the hearts of the people to realize their personal need for a relationship with Jesus, that he died for them and they need to believe that, they need to accept the atonement of Jesus directly on their behalf and that they would get to know Jesus Christ himself, not just through attending church and hearing stories and stuff. So, (laughs) oh yeah. Do you have a favorite one? (laughs) I forgot, after all that, I forgot that you had asked me a question. It's, It's hard because each one of them have their own unique characteristics. But who we've talked about so far, I would have to say Jonathan Edwards. (laughs) Nice. So my favorite so far is George Whitfield. Okay. So I'm really excited to talk about him. (laughs) Well, so far, what we have talked about, I thought that's what you're asking, which, (laughs) you know, Jonathan Edwards would have been the best of what we talked about so far. But yeah. As we get into George Whitfield, as I've been reading about it, I'm like just fascinated and captivated by his absolute enthusiasm. And, you know, compared to Edwards, Whitfield is a much more captivating electric personality. Yes, very true. (laughs) But I think what I like most about George Whitfield and what we'll kind of learn going through the history of him is just like his heart for all people and then (laughs) his heart for children. Mm. And we'll see that as we kind of go through the timeline of how George Whitfield became one of the well-known preachers during the Great Awakening time frame. 
Oh, yes, because when we talk about what is a celebrity, well, George Whitfield, according to some history books, is really America's first celebrity. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's what he's been called because people didn't become popular and well-known and travel like Whitfield did and having the kind of impact that he did, news would spread. People in England knew him. In fact, Whitfield had traveled England, Scotland, Wales, Hall. Holland, Ireland, and several trips to the colonies and up the border. <laughs> so he he made his rounds, so he really became a celebrity with his preaching there. So George Whitfield, you know, he began as an Anglican in England, as anyone would have at this time. <laughs> but he eventually became one of the founders of Methodism. And if you've heard of Methodism or the Methodist churches, you've probably heard of John and Charles Wesley. And yes, they are the well-known founders of Methodism, but Methodism is pretty much founded by three. You know, the Wesleys first, and then Whitfield joined them a little later, and he certainly had his influence there. So the three of them are technically the founders of the Methodist movement and its influence in England and ultimately in the colonies. So George Whitfield's father was the proprietor of and the owner of the Bell Inn in England, but his father passed away when George was only two years old, so that means his widowed mother had to try to take care of him, and she was trying to run the Bell Inn, and, you know, it was kind of a struggle throughout George's childhood and his mother trying to keep this fledgling in going. George you know, wasn't a preacher throughout his whole childhood there. He became one of the youngest preachers, but his childhood was characterized by him being kind of a raucous young boy and I'm sure living the tavern type life, being raised in a tavern, he kind of learned bad habits and bad language and stuff and So, according to Whitfield in his diaries, he was a raucous boy until he was about 15 when he was getting some interest in Christianity. So, when he was 15, he was trying to search out how he can apply religion or Christianity to his life, and he had kind of go through some changes over time. He tried to help his mom and served in the inn for about a year and a half after that point, so that when he was 18, ultimately in 1732, he went to Oxford, England, enrolled in Pembroke College. And how he paid for his tuition, this was a practice at the time, but it you know, lasted only for a few decades, and most colleges dropped this, was that someone could have their tuition for free if they worked as kind of a servant for students who had been there longer. So senior, junior type students, you would be considered at the lowest of the low in the enrolled students if you worked as a servant to help the other students out, you know, probably carry their bags and make food for them and stuff, but they'd get meals for free and tuition for free and being a servitor. So while at 
Pembroke College, George Whitfield met John and Charles Wesley. They would hold what was called holy clubs, <laughs> um, and the uh, Wesleys were in the process of deep religious study, reading the Bible, having devotionals, trying to basically live a disciplined, somewhat ascetic life as they tried to you know, live piously, and Whitfield joined them. And we'll learn about especially John Wesley in the next episode, but George Whitfield met the Wesleys there and kind of joined the new Methodist movement that the Wesleys were forming at the time. And so he became kind of a high member in that club that included a few dozen other people as it grew. And then the Wesleys eventually decided to move to George. Georgia, the colony of Georgia in the Americas there, and start a church called Christ Church in Georgia there. So when the Wesleys moved, Whitfield kind of took over the Methodist movement in England. In 1736, this was not something that Whitfield was looking for, but he was presented the opportunity to be ordained a deacon in the Church of England, the Anglican Church, and he was 22 years old at this time. So he accepted that. People observed his piety and gave a good report, so they recommended the holy orders that he be ordained as a deacon. And then as he officially entered his office there, he preached his first sermon, and he preached the gospel as he understood it at that time. Uh, then he quickly, soon afterwards, started studying at Oxford to get his Bachelor of Arts degree, and he focused focused on studying drama, acting. So he had thought about, maybe this is a career I want to get into. I want to do the performing arts. But as he would read and study the Bible, he got captivated more by the Bible. He would study it, as he said, like on his knees and praying. And eventually he decided, okay, I want to preach. That's going to be my vocation. He worked up this zeal that he wanted to spend every day <laughs> as much as he possibly could preaching the gospel to people. But his acting, his training in drama really helped. It really came in handy with his preaching because Whitfield's preaching style was going to be a dramatic, no pun intended, <laughs> departure from the typical preaching style, especially in the Church of England, where sermons were mostly kind of read and they were kind of dry. <laughs> but yeah, Whitfield's going to explode that. Andrew Rappaport's Rap Report is a podcast providing biblical interpretations and applications. It is a ministry of striving for eternity and part of the Christian podcast community. We provide a biblical view of cultural events, discuss how to apply God's word to the Christian life, address issues that concern the church, and we even take some time to offer a correct understanding of those commonly misinterpreted passages of scripture. You will hear from great guests like Justin Peters, Todd Friel, Jay Warren Wallace, and Gabe Hughes. Andrew has the Rap Report Daily, which is a two-minute Monday through Friday podcast, and then the longer Rap Report podcast for more content. Subscribe to both today by searching for Rap Report on any podcast app, spelled R-A-P-P Report, or click the podcast link at strivingforeternity.org. 
So one of my favorite quotes that Whitfield wrote amidst all of his studying and learning and just getting into reading God's word, he had a quote that says, I got more true knowledge from reading the book of God in one month than I could ever have acquired from all the writings of men. (laughs) So I just thought that was so neat, like how he saw how powerful and just how deep God's word was compared to all the other writings and information he was learning. That's pretty cool because it's not like he was just some hillbilly who only read the Bible. (laughs) He went to college, and I didn't mention that before he went to college, he went to like a grammar school, so he had studied grammar. And then in college, of course, he's studying the arts, so he read a lot of literature there, too, in college. And so he read a lot of books, but yes, reading the Bible for one month, he gets more out of that than anything else he could possibly read in a lifetime. That speaks to how powerful the Bible is, and as we see with Whitfield, reading the Bible really spurned him to become an incredible preacher and celebrity, and it wasn't that he was seeking to be regarded as a celebrity, it was just his passion for preaching. He started preaching in England, and he preached to crowds in outdoor venues. At first, he was trying to go to churches and preach because he was ordained as a deacon, but (laughs) the stuffy Church of England at this time didn't appreciate his dramatic, passionate, gospel-centric style of preaching. They didn't believe that that was proper and fit for church. (laughs) He was a liberal rebel, if you want to consider it like that, according to the culture of this time. (laughs) One thing that that was kind of noticeable about George Whitfield's physical appearance is that he had a, trying to remember what the medical condition is for cross-eyedness. Starts with an S, but (laughs) I, I didn't put, I didn't write it down, but he became well known also for that. And some people would make fun of him for that, as we'll see in some of the stories of how people would mock him. But I think probably his cross-eyedness when he'd preach passionately would add to his charm. If I could just picture him with some of the pictures showing him, like picture him dramatizing and projecting and being ecstatic and emotional while his eyes are <laughs> look like that. It just, I think it just makes him even more adorable. <laughs> okay, the medical term for cross-eyed is strabismus. Oh, that's what it was, yes. Because I'd read it before, but I didn't write it down. So what Whitfield also added to his preaching, as I said, his drama helped out, so he'd often act out narrations of characters in his sermons. And I looked at some of his sermons there. One of them, he would narrate Abraham and Isaac, Abraham with the command to offer up his son Isaac. And another one was Satan tempting Jesus. So possibly Whitfield's preaching tactics led to a few ten churches and 
some preachers will have like, okay, it's not just let's walk through the text of scripture and make polemic points about it. I mean, Jonathan Edwards was kind of like that. I mean, the way he would preach, it was a polemic message. But Whitfield's tactics of dramatizing, narrating, bringing stories in as illustrations influenced modern sermons, sermons that we have today. If you think of the whole like three points in a poem type of thing, or people bringing in like you have a text from the Bible and then they bring in a story about a hero in World War II or something to illustrate the point. That probably came from Whitfield's adding drama to his sermons and illustrating his sermons. So, in 1738, George Whitfield started his periodic travels to the Americas, the colonies, and he would usually travel there and often preach up the coast, starting in Georgia, go north. So, in 1738, he went to John Wesley's Christ Church in Savannah, Georgia, and he desired to start an orphanage there. Yeah, this is my favorite. Like <laughs> one of my favorite things about George Whitfield was that he had the heart for these orphans and saw that they needed to be cared for. They needed a safe place, a warm place, and food and just basic needs met. And hmm. he was like, all right, let's set this up and started the first orphanage there. And and this orphanage was primarily focused on black children, African-American children. So yeah, mm-hmm. the efforts of Whitfield was to take care of orphaned African-American children. He, unlike a lot of complacent colonialists and people in England, Whitfield cared for all types of people. Everything that he did out of charity and in his preaching was to bring the gospel to people. He believed in preaching the gospel freely to all peoples without discrimination. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the marks of a true revivalist. So then after spending about a year there in Savannah, Georgia, with his efforts to start an orphanage with the help of the Wesleys, he went back to England the next year, 1739, to try to fundraise. They didn't have a GoFundMe or a, what's the other one? Give, send, go. Yeah, Yeah, they didn't have a give, send, go (laughs) at this time. So he had to travel around and try to ask for funds. Hey, I'm trying to start an orphanage in Savannah, Georgia. Can we raise some money and I'll bring it there to help pay for the construction? So the next year, 1740, Bethesda Orphanage was built in Savannah, Georgia, with the help of the fundraising that Whitfield did in England and also in the colonies. Whitfield was not someone who was a stickler for any particular Christian denomination. (laughs) In his preaching, he would say things like, who's in hell? Like, are there Presbyterians in hell? Are there Anglicans in hell? Are there Baptists and Methodists in hell? And people would say like, yeah, he'd say the same thing about heaven. You know, are there only these people in heaven? No. Like, well, who's in heaven? Those who are Christians, those who believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ. And he was someone who could work with anyone who shared the same gospel. And one group who did were the Moravians. And 
Moravians were similar to Methodists, at least, you know, they're kind of unusual in this way because the non-denominational Methodist gospel-centric was kind of unusual at this time, and the Moravians were kind of like the Methodists that they could work with other people, but there were some doctrinal disagreements that ended up causing some problems with Whitfield's partnership there, but they kind of ended up departing parting in peace and the Moravians you know after Whitfield had to kind of leave not being able to finish it under his watch the Moravians ended up finishing the orphanage and they named it the Whitfield house so this we're talking about an orphanage in for black children in Pennsylvania. <laughs> so Whitfield started two orphanages basically, one in Georgia, one in Pennsylvania. So you have the Bethesda Orphanage in Georgia and the Whitfield House in Pennsylvania. I think it's interesting too as you look through all of Whitfield's work that he did. I mean, like we keep mentioning he just had this amazing passion that God gave him to preach the gospel. So here he's building orphanages in Georgia and Pennsylvania, but that's not enough. He's also in between those <laughs> two things. He's preaching the gospel to all these different colonies surrounding those areas too. So yeah. like you said, he was like going nonstop. <laughs> oh yeah, just about every day except sometimes where he became ill and had to be attended with a doctor and a hospital and stuff. Any opportunity he had, he was traveling and preaching several times a day and getting just enough sleep to get by. This next point is kind of cool that you're going to talk about, too, is just this amazing voice oh, yes. that God gave him. <laughs> so when we talked about Edwards, Jonathan Edwards, in the last episode, the way Edwards would preach, it was more like a professor lecturing. So Edwards was kind of soft-spoken, passionate, but just kind of a teacher-type voice. Whitfield's preaching was loud and dynamic, but passionate. Whitfield didn't just shout in anger, you know. I mean, he preached boldly, and some people would say, like, he trembled sometimes when he preached because he was so into it, so emotional, so passionate. Whitfield himself, as he preached, would sometimes weep while he was preaching. And as I was reading, like, people would talk about just how incredibly dramatic he was that he could say the word Mesopotamia in such a way that people would just break down weeping. <laughs> like, that's just how incredibly gifted and dramatic and powerful his voice was. I read someone said, an actor who said something like, what I would give to be able to say, oh, like Whitfield. <laughs> <laughs> so Whitfield's preaching loud and dynamic but passionate, very emotional, and he preached indiscriminately both to the colonialists and to black slaves, as we said, to everyone, inviting everyone to accept the gospel and be changed. So this was kind of unusual because there'd be some, especially the stuffier preachers who were in the dead religion where it's like, we have our churches, you know, the slaves at this time, they had to sit kind of in the corner and they partake secondarily of the faith, but we have our religion and we're the holy colonialists or something. But Whitfield was not like that. He did not discriminate. I mean, he would address 
different people groups as he preached, but he believed that absolutely everyone should hear the gospel and have the offer directed to them the same way. So this is another thing that I like about Whitfield is you're right. Like he did not have any discrimination presenting the gospel. And he would make that often in his sermons that Christ came and died for all. Mm-hmm. And I know one of his sermons, he even brought up one of my favorite Bible verses here, <laughs> Galatians 3.28. So it says, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither bond nor free, there is neither male nor female, for ye are all one in Christ Jesus. And we've mentioned that Whitfield cared about the African-American people. He cared about the Indians. Mm -hmm. He cared about the Englishmen. You mentioned he cared about people of even different religious backgrounds here. He cared about all people because he saw how the scripture is so clear that Christ came and died for all and that there is no distinction between who gets to hear the gospel and who doesn't. And I just think that is so neat and especially in contrast to what we see today where there's a lot of discrimination, even though there's that movement towards being non-discriminatory, but there is a lot of that. And I think people just don't have that understanding of what Christ did for all mankind. Whitfield in some ways pioneered this kind of non-discriminatory fellowship of Christianity and Yeah, we'll see that there is even an African-American convert who became a missionary. (laughs) So we mentioned about Whitfield's voice. So God blessed him with a powerful voice augmented by his study in acting to handle the ever-increasing crowd sizes because as he would travel and preach, his notoriety increased and people would gather to hear him. More and more people would gather like out of curiosity. Also, there'd be even be critics who would come to hear him and the sizes would increase more and more. So in 1742, after he was working with the orphanages, he returned to England and he preached to crowds there. One over 10,000, and it's been estimated that there was one crowd size that was about 20,000, you know, so that's an amazing, when we don't have microphones, that he could preach to that many people in one instance. He had a very unique, thunderous, booming, dramatic voice. And to think having a crowd that size and with the power of the persuasion of his dramatic voice, as people describe, he could have whole crowds just weeping, even people like just falling prostrate on the ground, weeping uncontrollably. Like God just blessed him with not only the voice to preach, but the way to just make the word of God so alive that it's like a dagger into your heart. But not everyone admired Whitfield. You know, you have your friends, you have your converts, but you also have the people who try to stop you, who can't stand it. And, of course, some of the churches there didn't like Whitfield, and some of the rogues, you know, and criminals didn't like him. Now, most churches, they didn't believe his style of preaching and his gospel application was proper for churches, so most churches closed their doors to him, which is what forced him to be an outdoor evangelist. 
Now, he had, you know, a few occasions to be able to preach at a pulpit in a church. And last episode, we mentioned Jonathan Edwards met up with him. And so Whitfield got to preach behind the pulpit in Northampton, leading to everyone there, including Jonathan Edwards, weeping. And that message was very helpful in Edwards' life because after a kind of tragic result to his early revivals, Edwards was kind of toning down the revival preaching and getting discouraged, but Whitfield's sermon there just sparked Edwards anew, and that ultimately led to Edwards having his most powerful revivals. He'd preached his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God, to the congregation at Enfield, Connecticut. So we see that Whitfield was instrumental in helping Edwards with his very famous Great Awakening revival there. Now, Whitfield would often face mobs of people who wanted to harm or kill him. If you picture someone at a theater and getting booed and people throwing rotten fruit at him, maybe that came from Whitfield, but it was probably still common practice at this time, and it probably wasn't invented in this case, but some people would throw rotten fruit or, as I read, either dead cats or pieces of a dead cat or something like that. Like they're, they're, they're trying to throw stuff at him that would make him leave. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One time, a, a Navy lieutenant, I think this was on a voyage one of his trips because he made like seven trips to the colonies and think you know this isn't flying southwest airlines this was a long voyage by boat across the atlantic and think of how people would get sick get scurvy and stuff like that this wasn't very pleasant but whitfield's enthusiasm to preach in england and up the colonies led him to do this about seven times and one time a navy lieutenant was angry at him and tried to kill him while he was sleeping one time when ed when whitfield was in dublin ireland he was stoned nearly to death almost like the apostle paul but that didn't stop whitfield it didn't discourage him he's if i remember he wrote like i had the privilege of basically getting stoned nearly to death and you know it's kind of like hey this is evidence i'm doing the right thing you know like you can't put whitfield down here <laughs> How is your flame of truth, Christian? Is it burning bright? Hi, I'm Rebecca Bershwinger, creator and host of One Little Candle, a weekly podcast dedicated to encouraging, empowering, and equipping believers to be the light that God has called us to be so that we may pass down undefiled the truth of God's infallible word to the next generation. So join me and light your own little corner of the world. You can listen to One Little Candle on all major podcast platforms or at christianpodcastcommunity.org. In 1745, Whitfield returned to the colonies to focus once again on his orphanage work, and he also became friends with the great Benjamin Franklin. Now, Whitfield had, as he made an emphasis, he preached the gospel pretty much to everyone he met, and Franklin would note and he would write about how Whitfield would constantly try to convert him, as he called it. You know, he'd preach the gospel to him. 
him and Franklin would jovially resist it, you know, because Franklin was like a deist of some sort, maybe an Aristotelian theist. So Franklin believed that God existed, but he rejected the orthodoxies of the Bible Later on in his life, he did believe, you have the quote, The longer I live, the more convincing proofs I see of this truth that God governs the affairs of men. So he wasn't like the deists who just believed that God was the watchmaker who set everything in motion and then wasn't involved. But he also wasn't a fervent Bible believer either. You know, he thought the Bible was a good book and he tried to live out virtue in his understanding, but he didn't really believe the gospel of Jesus. Christ. But Whitfield and Benjamin Franklin maintained years of, you know, an interesting but close friendship. Whitfield would write letters to him. He'd first call him sir, but then over time, you know, he'd refer to him as friend and stuff. So they had a nice close relationship. They collaborated in charity work and determining education methods for a school in Philadelphia. I read that one time Franklin was hearing Whitfield preach a sermon about charity. And then Franklin wrote about how first he thought, all right, I'm going to give a few coppers and then, okay, I'll give some silver as the sermon's going. And then toward the end of it, it's kind of like, okay, I'm just going to give everything I have <laughs> on my person right now, <laughs> you know, like that. <laughs> So kind of a fun thing that Franklin is the scientist and he wants to look at everything from that scientific perspective. And he was somewhat skeptical of how Whitfield could preach to large crowds and still be heard. So he decided to do an experiment like (laughs) scientists like to do. So he went to a place when Whitfield was preaching out in the field and he went as far away as he could where he could barely hear him. And they, he measured a semicircle. And then he estimated that. And if there were about one person per two square feet, then about 30,000 people could gather and be able to hear Whitfield. And he's like, wow, this is actually true. And I could prove it with this semi-scientific <laughs> method here. So... It was kind of cool that he's like skeptical and thought, okay, I'm going to disprove that this can happen. And then he goes and it's like, wait, his largest crowd was about 20,000. And this just proves that he could reach at least 30,000. Like, <laughs> yeah, like technically he could. So he'd hear the reports about like 10,000 people, 20,000 people. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. So while one sermon, it's like, well, everyone's there listening and weeping as usual. Franklin's scientific mode, like, hmm, let me pace out here and you know, measure. And then, yeah, <laughs> but then it's like, wow, it is true. <laughs> now, there's two short, like, interesting stories about converts. So, Whitfield had many converts, but there's some notable ones that I'd like to mention quickly. 
So there's a guy named Thorpe who was kind of a rogue type person. He and his companions who would frequent bars, they were ones who would try to go to some of Whitfield's preaching and disrupt it. And, you know, of course, Whitfield wouldn't let that keep him down. He'd probably just like smile at them and laugh at them or something. But they would make fun of him and make fun of his cross-eyed. So one time Thorpe and his companions were in a bar and they were making fun of Whitfield's preaching like they were all going to try to imitate him and you know they're going to take turns imitating like kind of get up on the table and start pretending to preach like Whitfield and cross their eyes and stuff so they were going to all imitate Dr. Squintum as they called him so Thorpe actually had a, a copy of one of Whitfield's printed sermons thanks to Benjamin Franklin who would print you know and distribute of Whitfield sermons, but this was in England, if I remember correctly. So this group, they called themselves the Hellfire Club, and Thorpe's is like, okay, I can beat you all. He's going to do a better impression of Whitfield. So he has his copy of the sermon, and he gets up on the table, and he's going to preach the sermon, you know, and mock it in Whitfield's voice and cross his eyes like Whitfield. And he starts reading the verse at the beginning, the text, and it's Luke thirteen three that says, like, so he's preaching, except ye repent, ye shall all likewise perish. And then he's, like, thinking about the words, like they're just piercing into his heart. So then he's saying like, oh, the perishing, how can I, you know, I'm going to perish and stuff. And so then his companions, they're not quite sure what to make of this, but they're telling him like, look, stop being a coward, continue on, like, you know, do the preaching. And then he's like, I can't, I must repent. I'm, I, I'm such a sinner. He's like sobbing. He's like, I've, I've got to go talk to Mr. Whitfield. And so, you know, he ends up going back to his home he becomes converted and then he ends up becoming a, a preacher himself. <laughs> it's kind of a humorous story, but the way God worked through Whitfield, even possibly without his own knowledge, is pretty cool. <laughs> yeah, especially when, I mean, you think of it like their intention was to mock and make fun of Whitfield. And yet, like, I don't know, it's, it's cool to see how the power of the gospel can reach in so many different circumstances and times and so never underestimate the power of the gospel i guess <laughs> yeah and as we talked about african americans that whitfield would preach to here's one unsuspecting one there is a conversion of this was a freeborn african american by the name of john marant who was born in new york and he learned to play the French horn. And he was a young man, I think the age of 12 or 13 when this happened. But he had a, a few friends and they were hearing that a Whitfield sermon was going on. And the one friend dared him to say, OK, I want you to go interrupt him by blowing your French horn. <laughs> and so he had his horn on his shoulder. So he's going to he went in there. And then just as he was starting to take his horn off of his shoulder, to start to blow it. Whitfield was beginning his sermon and with his opening text from the book of Amos, he kind of 
point, you know, he just happened because he would do that with people. He'd probably point at people, you know, like an actor would look at people. And he happened to like point at John Merrant there and shout the verse, prepare to meet thy God, O Israel. And then when he said that, that kind of shocked John Merrant. He fell on his back and he was unconscious basically for a half hour. People had to get out the smelling salts, but he recalls basically he felt like Satan's attacks going on at the time, you know, like, oh, I have to, you know, repent and stuff. But uh, eventually Whitfield, you know, as everyone left and he was still like having to be revived there, Whitfield actually came up to him afterwards and said something like, I see that Jesus Christ got you. <laughs> but that experience ended up, you know, converting him. And then he became a Methodist preacher. He preached to Cherokee Indians. And ultimately, he ended up moving up to Nova Scotia and preached up there, too. So, yeah, that was another cool thing about Whitfield. Hi, I'm Sharon Wilharm, host of All God's Women podcast and internationally syndicated radio show. I'd love to invite you to join me as we bring to life the stories of women in the Bible and discover their relevance for our lives today. Listen at allgodswomen.com, your favorite podcast platform, or at christianpodcastcommunity.org. We have some quotes from Whitfield. As you listen to these quotes, you can see the passion and the heart that Whitfield had as he preached the gospel indiscriminately to colonialists and African Americans alike. One quote he's in his preaching, he says, Come poor, lost, undone sinner, come just as you are to Christ. Mm. So another one of his quotes that's really powerful is, Other men may preach the gospel better than I. But no man can preach a better gospel. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so cool. How sweet is rest after fatigue? How sweet will heaven be when our journey is ended? Mm-hmm. And the next one is works, works. A man get to heaven by works? I would as soon think of climbing to the moon on a rope of sand. <laughs> In other words, it can't be done. Yeah. <laughs> and then... Though you have sinned much, that is no reason why you should despair, but only why you should love much, having so much forgiven. Oh, I like that one. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. Yes, very powerful words that he would say, and you can just see his passion and love for people and um, just sharing what Christ has done. Yeah, I read uh, his sermon of justification by Christ, and the end of it, I think, is very powerful. He says... And can any poor, truly convicted sinner after this despair of mercy? What? Can they see their Savior hanging on a tree with arms stretched out ready to embrace them? And yet, on their truly believing on him, doubt of finding acceptance with him? No, away with all such dishonorable, desponding thoughts. Look on his hands, bored with pins of iron. Look on his side, pierced with a cruel spear, to let loose the sluices of his blood and open a fountain for sin and for all uncleanness, and then despair of mercy if you can. No, only believe in him, and then, though you have crucified him afresh, yet will he abundantly pardon you. 
Though your sins be as scarlet, yet shall they be as wool. Though deeper than crimson, yet shall they be whiter than snow. Mm. So near the end of Whitfield's life, he was known famously for saying, I would rather wear out than rust out. Mm. (laughs) And in 1770, you know, which was only six years before the American Revolution, he passed away at the age of 55. And he was friends with Jonathan Wesley, although they had some disagreements over how salvation is enacted by God and stuff. But they both preached the gospel, and he requested that John Wesley preach his funeral service, which Wesley, in fact, did. And Wesley outlived him to be in his 80s. Yeah, Whitfield was pretty young. He, he just <laughs> wore himself out from all of his passion of going around and preaching the gospel. And not to mention all the scares he had in his life, too, being stoned almost to death. <laughs> yeah. Yikes. So now we'll end uh, our discussion of Whitfield to talk about some of the controversy because today there's the idea of tearing down monuments of important historical figures. (laughs) So, yes, at this time we're talking about, you know, a little over a hundred years in the colonies before the Emancipation Proclamation. Slavery was a normalized institution in some states, but some states outlawed slavery even before it was outlawed in England. But England also kind of pioneered the end of slavery, which ultimately resulted in a federal emancipation in the United States with Abraham Lincoln. Now, there were a few abolitionists like You know, it was a very fringe movement at this time. And as we'll see, the Wesleys in the next episode, they happen to be among the few abolitionists. Whitfield was not an abolitionist. He did defend slavery, but as we said, he preached the gospel indiscriminately to all. He cared for orphan African Americans. He started the orphanages. He preached to the slaves where a lot of churches would oppose that at this time. You know, it was a controversy to believe in preaching the gospel to slaves, and Whitfield tenderly and passionately would visit the plantations and preach the gospel to the slaves there, and he didn't treat them as lowlifes. He also wrote vehemently against mistreating slaves as he observed some people treat them poorly, and he was outraged by that. Now, he did defend the institution of slavery, but as you get to know Whitfield, he didn't do that because he liked people serving other people. He, especially in Georgia, as slavery was being outlawed or removed, he kind of didn't want that to happen because he thought that would mean that African Americans would not be living in kind of his base there of Savannah, Georgia and his orphanages and the Christ Church there and of preaching to African Americans. So the primary reason he defended slavery was because he wanted people to preach to. He thought that this would be the only way that they would actually hear the gospel. So, yes, he wasn't faultless this way, but he was a lot better than many of the Christians at this time. Also, Phyllis Wheatley, who was a black slave woman, 
and eventually freed because she showed a very scholarly and powerful skill in poetry. And because of that, she was actually let go to write poetry. And she heard Whitfield's preaching to the slaves and very much appreciated him as a friend to slaves and basically a a liberator in that way. And she wrote a poem as tribute to Whitfield. And so that says a lot to Whitfield's attitude toward slaves. Yeah, I was reading a little bit in our kids' history book, too, about Whitfield, and it was just talking about how, you know, at first Whitfield was like, yes, we need to get rid of slavery because this is not good. This isn't how we should treat them. But then he saw like, okay, now the orphanages are struggling because we don't have people who are helping run these. And so then he's like, okay, wait, maybe slaves are a good thing to have so we can keep the orphanage up and running as well. And like you pointed out, Whitfield just looked at slaves differently and he treated them differently. He treated them as humans, people that were still valued like in the eyes of God. And so I think a lot of times we just have one very slim view of slavery And there's a lot of different ways that people would treat slaves at that time. Even in the Bible, you see that there were slaves or servants in the Bible. And so Jesus is telling them how to treat your slaves, how to treat your masters, and how to be respectful of one another. And it's not this power over someone else. It's about working together and helping each other. (laughs) Because Christianity and the truths of the Bible would ultimately result in Christian movements of abolition including William Wilberforce, who he was motivated by some of the preaching of Whitfield in that regard, and of Wesley. And so William Wilberforce, who was a force (laughs) for abolition, got some of that from Whitfield and Wesley, and, you know, as he would become friends with John Newton. So the last little historical part of George Whitfield before we get to how he died, but so recently on July 2nd of the year 2020, there was a monument at the University of Pennsylvania in George Whitfield's memory that it sounded like it was a small group of people or just one person, I couldn't quite tell from the article, but they put this monument there to just recognize what Whitfield did in the world of Christianity, like being a great preacher and bringing all these people to Christ, his work with the orphanages and just his care for people. And that's why they wanted this monument here. Well, when historians were like, oh, wait a minute, he was for slavery in Georgia, so we can't have this. That monument is showing institutional racism and white supremacy, so we need to tear it down. So on July 2nd of 2020, they tore down the George Whitfield monument there. They didn't go through any of the normal procedures to remove a monument. They just went in and took it down. In some ways, he was a product of his time, but he was much better than most people of his time there. So it's it's hard to fault him there when he he was making do with what he had, but he was a motivator. He was a charitable person, and 
you know, he was influential ultimately for getting rid of slavery down the road, and he was a friend to the colonies in their understanding of liberty and civil liberties and religious liberties, and he advocated for the freedom of the colonies against the tyranny of England, even though he was native to England, and I read where some historians said, like, if it weren't for Whitfield's preaching and advocacy, the American independence could have been much later, if at all. You know, and so, yes, we have a lot in debt to Whitfield for our American identity and liberty. So Whitfield should be given his credit where the credit is due and his revivalism certainly led to the Christian heritage that we had in the First Great Awakening and ultimately to Christian ideas of liberty and charity. We hope that this episode was interesting to you, informative, and helps to understand some of the great revivalism under George Whitfield and his influence. And we hope that this will also encourage you to stay tuned for the next episode as we will continue our series on revivals in the First Great Awakening, and we'll talk about John Wesley. So God bless. Thank you for waking up with Truth Espresso. Good morning, and God bless your day. Hey friends, Daniel Minnick here again. If you liked waking up to this episode of Truth Espresso, I would really appreciate it if you would rate it on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or whatever application you use to listen to Truth Espresso. 